Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Big Blue Insider is on. News Radio 630 WLAP and the iHeartRadio app. To interact with the show, call us at 859-280-2287. That's 859-280-CATS. Or you can tweet us at BigBlueInsider1. Now, here's Dick Gabriel. We welcome you to another edition of the Big Blue Insider. We take one more big step toward the Kentucky Derby and another moderately sized step toward college football with those fingers crossed. As always, we welcome you on a... Been another weird day, of course, windy and rainy and this and that, but we don't care because, like I said, we're getting close to college football and joined today by Billy Rutledge, who was off yesterday, but he was back essentially. Wherever you were, I'm sure you were essential, am I right? Yeah, that's right, Dick. Actually, I had never been called essential before this year, so it has been a nice feeling to be called that every time we introduce the show, but uh, the alarms were scrambling when I called out yesterday. We had had a couple people spring into action, so thank you for them. Good. Well, and uh, we thank Bo for uh, for filling in. Uh, Aaron has the night off, by the way, so uh, we will uh, welcome him back tomorrow night, and we welcome your calls at 280-2287-800-606-4263. You can tweet us at BigBlueInsider1. Uh, got a full show tonight, not that we don't every night, but uh, three guests tonight. Doug Flynn's going to join us at the bottom of the hour. We talked to Doug not too long ago about the Reds. But we need to chat with Doug about Tom Seaver, who passed last night at age 75. You know, and that gets to be a younger and younger age as we go along, especially with former pro athletes. But he had been suffering for quite a while. And uh, Doug, of course, is a I want to say he's a footnote because he was a part of maybe some people think he was, but he was part of one of the biggest trades in the history of professional baseball, the one that sent Tom Seaver from the Mets, the team that he helped lead from the bottom to the top, the Miracle Mets, he left New York and was traded to the Reds for like five, a total of five players, and Doug was one of them. Uh, and, and, of course, people in New York are still upset about the trade, and Doug and the guys who came up there were not welcomed with open arms, as you might expect. However, Tom Seaver wanted out. It was a negotiating ploy, and he got what he wanted. You know, he left New York and he ended up in Cincinnati. Did not help them uh, win a World Series, but he did pitch a no-hitter, his only no-hitter for the Reds. So I have a chance to talk to Doug about that, and I will get him to tell the story. I've had him tell it before, and I've watched him tell people the story of how he found out that he was being traded, and it was not in a conventional way. I'll leave it at that, and Pete Rose was involved, so you need to stay tuned, if nothing else. But I want to get Doug's uh, Doug's memories and thoughts on being a part of that trade, and that part of baseball history. My buddy Fred Calgill will join us from over in Louisville. Fred is a guy, get this now, he's from New York State. He went to the University of Tennessee, but he's worked and lived in Louisville for now. He's in his fourth decade, I believe, and considers himself a Kentuckian now. 
adores horse racing and the Kentucky Derby. He also, of course, covers UK, UofL. So we'll talk some Derby uh, news. We'll talk uh, some UK football with him and maybe some UofL. And uh, we will tell you that there has been a scratch in the Kentucky Derby. So we'll get to that here in just a moment. But uh, Lee K. Howard will join us as well in hour number two. We'll talk some UK football and some high school football as well with Lee K. because the previews are rolling in at WKYT.com. So uh, we'll, we'll chat with Lee K. about what to expect in uh, the city and in the county. King Guillermo is the horse that we believe will scratch. Uh, he did not go to the track this morning. His trainer said he had a, quote, little problem. That's according to Greg Hall, a pool reporter for the Turf Riders and Broadcasters. Greg, by the way, a product of Trinity High School. Thank you very much. Uh, but he said that a decision on what's next will be made later today, so we haven't gotten word yet. Fred may have that word for us by the time he joins us. This is the guy, the horse that won the Tampa Bay Derby, and he's a 20-to-1 shot, so that would drop the field to 17 if indeed he does scratch. Some other news from around the country. And this one, Billy, uh, we've been talking obviously so much about football players and their health. And if it's not a smoking gun, it's it's a big alarm bell. 35% of Big Ten athletes who had COVID-19 now show signs of the inflammation of the heart muscle. That's myocarditis. So now... That adds an extra layer to the debate over the safety of playing sports during the pandemic. This has started. This had started to come up a couple of weeks ago, and the director of athletic medicine at Penn State said that 30 to 35 percent of the cardiac MRI scans conducted, not on football players alone, but on Big Ten athletes who had contracted COVID-19, appeared to show. Myocarditis. This came during a uh, meeting of the State College Area Board of School Directors. So the question now is, are other conferences testing for this? And could this lead, if indeed they are, to other Power Five conferences, other conferences, period, shutting down football and all sports? And here's my bigger question. If they're not testing for it, why not? Right? Right. Yeah, uh, I didn't know about those numbers, Dick, and I think, that's, up. I think that's the scary part is because we don't know uh, a lot about the long-term impacts of COVID-19. So I think it's vital that every person that is taking that risk and playing and deciding not to opt out knows of this possible risk. This is pretty important information, and if you're telling me 35% of these guys are seeing some inflammation, then that is going to seriously impact at least my decision-making when it comes to playing this fall. Guys and gals, this is not, like I said, not just football. Right, yeah. But it's uh, it's any athlete who is tested. And you think about this. When you're an elite athlete, when you're an athlete, period, if you go out and jog tonight, you are pushing your heart muscle. That's why it's good for you. My wife and I will probably go out and we, we try to walk a couple of miles each night. And we're in a really hilly neighborhood and you break a good sweat. And you could actually, we have a huge hill to climb at the end of our walk. But what that does is it really forces you to push yourself. Well, obviously, that's, that, that starts with a heart. So if you're an elite athlete and you are risking competing, I'm not just talking about football, well, now the most important muscle in your body could be adversely affected. 
with myocarditis. And, and you know, Dick, just because you've worked so hard to get that to that point, that's you, right. You may, you know, um, side on the fact that of playing and taking that risk. But you know, uh, another point of that that I've heard people bring up is that we don't let players injured with a concussion on the football field decide if they go back out on the field. Right. So ultimately, you know, there's people decisions that have to be made. And we saw it like the Big Ten and Pac-12 deciding to cancel football. This is evidence of one of the points of main reasons why they decided to make that decision. That's right. And, look, athletes are competitors. Competitors want to compete. Right. So I, it, it's interesting to me, and I, I absolutely do not judge any athlete who opts out. I do not judge, period. Um, but it's it's interesting when people seem dismayed when they do because – uh, competitors, like I said, they want to compete. And I've seen guys on the sideline arguing with trainers and coaches. I want to go back out. And they literally, you know, the coaches talk about we had to take his helmet. That's not a metaphor. They're not speaking figuratively. They had, they literally take the helmet of the player who wants to go back out so he doesn't sneak back out onto the field. You know, but that's that's, like you said, that's what they've been training to do. You know, and, and by the time they get into competition, into a game or a match, well, now that adrenaline is spiking. And we've seen people go out and play with sprains and bruises and all that. And then after, and maybe a lot of you have done that, have played any kind of sport, and you know you're banged up, you know you're tired, and when you're done, oh, man. And the next day, oh, man, do you really feel it. So it, it's like many people have said, if you left it up to the players, everybody, or for the most part, every team would be out there. Some kids would decide not to play. But you've read it more than once. You've heard it more than once. You know, the adults have to make the decision. And this is not condescension and, and, and tw- pointed toward the players. But there are people who have to make the decisions and take the emotion out. So, But I would really like to know if they're testing for this in other conferences. So uh, I, I'm assuming we'll hear more about that as uh, the days wear on and as we get closer and closer to college football in the SEC. And college football, really, it's already started in some areas. So something to keep an eye on. Uh, in the NBA, this was, I thought, a pretty interesting headline out of New York. Steve Nash hired as coach of the Brooklyn Nets. Never been a head coach before. Obviously, a superstar as a player, Hall of Fame point guard, two-time MVP, not a lot of coaching experience. The acting head coach was Jacques Vaughn, but he'll and he'll stay on as an assistant coach. And they're making a gamble. I think this is really interesting, though. And remember now, this is a guy who will inherit a forward named Kevin Durant. This coming season, Durant's sitting out the season with an injury. And apparently he's the only, uh, he and Vaughn were the only candidates to formally interview for the job. And Vaughn's been the interim coach since March the 7th when that's when they up and fired their head coach. He's the only guy to apply for the job? He and the uh, the interim coach. That's, yeah, Jacques Vaughn. That's funny. Um, yeah. You know, I th- I think he might do well in this role. Um, I'm optimistic because I feel like being a coach in the NBA is as much about managing personalities no as it is uh, the basketball X's and O's. And while no doubt Steve Nash has the X's and O's down, um, you know, 
you going to tell me Tyron Lue is one of the best X's and O's basketball coaches out there? I think he just did a good job of managing LeBron and Kyrie yeah. with Cleveland. So That's exactly right. Maybe he can do it with Kevin Durant and Kyrie. Yeah, and in fact, there were stories about how he'd call a play and LeBron would step in and say, no, no, we're doing this. <laughs> but when you sign up to coach, to be right, with the yeah. coach, you know, it's like Frank Vogel with the Lakers, you know, the former U.K. manager, former U.K. video coordinator, is the head coach of the Lakers. But as soon as he was hired, people, of course, predicted that, that LeBron would eventually fire him and put whoever he wanted in place. And, of course, the Lakers say, no, that's not the way it's working, et cetera. But anyway, the other thing he's got to do is try to deal with Kyrie Irving, which <laughs> from all accounts is not real easy. But he can relate, I'm sure, as a point guard. And Irving would be a fool to not listen to this guy, to a Hall of Famer, two-time MVP, right? Uh, well, he thinks the world is flat, Dick. So, I mean, how much <laughs> listening does this guy do? Well, that's a fair point. <laughs> I had completely forgotten about this. In fact, Nash was a back-to-back MVP in 05-06 uh, with the Phoenix Suns. So, uh, you know, heck of a player. And uh, I don't know. It's it, This is going to be really interesting. So, uh, and in case you, you don't follow the NBA, he's more than likely going to be fired because practically all of them do. It, it's amazing. The only I think the only sport that fires coaches quicker is hockey. Seems like hockey coaches are always, always getting the boot. And I don't know if it works or not. I don't follow enough hockey, but uh, maybe a new voice is what you need. 280-2287-800-606-4263. Tweet us at Big Blue Insider 1. We're back in a few on 630 WLAP. This is the home of the Wildcats. 630 WLAP. One of my favorite songs. Man, that one is about 45 years old. Something like that. Maybe older. Maybe 50 years old. Welcome back to the Big Blue Insider. Dick Gabriel, Billy Rutledge. 280-2287. 800-606-4263. Tweet us at Big Blue Insider one uh, I was going to ask you, Billy, I think we already talked about the – well, I know I talked about it with Aaron, but you were off the Utah-Denver championship game. You were under the weather. Did you get a chance to watch that game? I did, at least uh, most of it, because right. they were going at it. I mean, They the- were. Jamal were, and Donovan. It was like UK, UofL all over again. Wasn't but it? what's interesting to me is the debate about, and there are people out there who just don't like NBA, the NBA. Uh, I was lukewarm on it until I moved to an NBA city, and then I got to really like it. It never supplanted college uh, basketball for me the way it had for some people. But um, I can tell you this, that every NBA game you attend, there is something that happens usually where if you were at a college game, you would walk out of the arena talking about that play being so spectacular. It happens all the time in the NBA. It's they're, they're so good. However, I don't know about you, Mr. Rutledge, I thought that game set basketball back. And part of it was they were playing really tough defense. I mean, physical. Uh, Jamal Murray could not get an open look. To Utah's credit, they were forcing him, and he was taking the bait to throw up the most god-awful shots that I've ever seen him take. But still, Denver ends up winning the game. So, in your mind, was it just a a hard-fought win for Denver, or 
uh, just a really lousy basketball game. <laughs> I, I see your point, Dick. Um, and, you know, this may not apply to that game particularly, but what you were saying, the guys make it look so effortless. Uh, feats that you would say, wow, if you were walking out of a college game. But also my complaint in the NBA, would a lot of times it does look effortless. A lot of times the, uh, the defensive sequence, not in the playoffs, is you know something that I just don't even want to watch. I think there has been reports of a couple series of not showing a, a lot of defensive intensity. But I definitely think what you're, what you're saying there, there was uh, a ton of just back and forth throwing it up there. And also, didn't it end on a really bad call from the refs? So, I mean... I don't know. I, I loved the series, and it, it brought a lot of excitement back to the NBA. So maybe I looked yeah. at it more of like a, just kind of a broad, nice-to-have competitive, high-intense sports on oh, again. Yeah, yeah and I, I heard one of the announcers talk about the fact that Murray had put on 12 pounds of muscle. You know, So we have a tendency to think of these guys the way you know, in, in terms of the way we saw them when they were last in front of us on a college basketball court, whether they were playing for Kentucky – or an opponent of the Wildcats. So uh, it is interesting, like you said, it was definitely a UK UofL matchup. So, anyhow, um, I mean, it, it at least, hey, it's something to watch. It's fun. That's and all the, I some can emotion, yeah. too. Those oh. guys laid it all out there. Oh, yeah, they really did. Uh, a tip for you, tip of the cap your Buccaneers just got stronger, or, or are you excited about this? Leonard Fournette, speaking of someone that we got to see play. Leonard Fournette, former LSU Tiger, and was just a beast in college. And really, he's been a beast in the pros, just not lately, and was fired by the Jaguars. That's what happens when you get cut. He was fired. Uh, why beats me? What was he, the fourth player, third player chosen in the draft three years ago? Yeah, I think he was uh, fourth in the 2017 draft that yeah. had McCaffrey. It had Joe Mixon. It yeah, had, oh, oh, it was a ton. That was an incredible draft for running backs. Uh, but the Buccaneers picked him up. So now you look at the offensive weapons your boys have. Man, they're not just putting Brady out there saying, go do it. Oh, no. They're backing it up this offseason. It has been spectacular as a Bucs fan. I think the failed relationship between Fournette and the Jaguars was a lot on the Jaguars. Who drafts a guy in the top five who is giving you top ten running back production in the league and cuts him before his fourth year in the league. Um, it just doesn't make sense. I think it, it says more about the Jaguars than it does Fournette. And, you know, we talk about a short lifespan of running backs. I don't think Fournette has hit that uh, lifespan yet. I think that he's got plenty of great NFL days ahead of him. And the running back position was a huge weakness for Tampa last year. And it was going to be a bit of a revolving door with Ronald Jones and LaShawn McCoy and a rookie Keyshawn Vaughn out of Vanderbilt. So I, I like the I like it. How can't I? Obviously, <laughs> and uh, you know, I don't know. My expectations are too high now, Dick. Well, you you have a right. You know, I mean, you got excited. They signed Brady, and like I said, my Packers when we signed Reggie White back in the mid '90s, really it was the early '90s. Everybody predicted instantly that we'd go to the Super Bowl, and not just because I'm a pessimist, but I said, you got to wait. You, you got to slow down. And they weren't saying it back then, but pump the brakes. Because they hadn't made enough improvements, in my opinion. And how much could a defensive tackle help you on the field? Well, the answer is a lot. But where he really helped them was by helping them sign other free agents. And that happened after his first year. And then the, the quality really began to rise 
and the Packers go to back-to-back Super Bowls. Blew the second one, of course, but uh, won the first one. So I, I do believe Brady will help immediately in ways, of course, that a D-tackle never could. Hey, Super Bowl 52 this year is in Tampa, Dick. Perfect. Perfect. Couldn't be written better. You're listening to Big Blue Insider with Dick Gabriel on News Radio 630 WLAP and WLAP.com. Country boy at heart. Well, back in the day when Mr. Doug Flynn played in the big leagues, and he did that for 11 years, they didn't have walk-up music. But if they had, that would have been the one he had chosen. I don't blame him. Welcome, sir. How are we? We are very good, sir. Doing well, like everybody else, just kind of sitting at home waiting for this thing to break and trying to do the best we can. But I have no no complaints, sir. Can I assume that your walk-up music wouldn't have been a Gatlin Brothers song simply because you didn't know him <clears> at that point? No, actually, I didn't know him at that point. Oh, so, did you? <laughs> and I told Billy that. that it would either have been Gatlin's Oaks or probably Exile. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. You knew all those guys. Okay, well, I'll, people don't want to hear about uh, about us talking music, but uh, that, that to me is one of the, my favorite things I, I talk about with you, you know, your, your uh, relationship with all those folks. And uh, you do a lot of charity work with them as well. So, But I do want to get quickly to the top uh, subject, which is Tom Seaver. But I need to uh, issue a clarification now that we had talked earlier at the top of the show about uh, Penn State athletes, or not Penn State athletes, Big Ten athletes, 35% of the ones tested, testing positive for myocarditis. That is not accurate. The doctor from Penn State has issued a statement basically saying that because of the way and where and how and when that he was answering questions to some local health leaders, he basically said that he had issued comments that were misconstrued so he said, as far as he knew, nobody at Penn State had tested positive. So we got to be careful about uh, what we say about this kind of thing. No question about that. But the doctor from Penn State has come out and has said that those were really inflammatory, no pun intended, remarks. And uh, he has backed off of them or has explained that he did not do a good job in explaining how those numbers were extrapolated. And by the way, I got a text from a buddy uh, who is familiar with what they do over at UK and basically said, and I had a figure, I had a, uh, I figured this was the case. I had a feeling this was the case. Uh, he said that if indeed there is a positive test of an athlete after they isolate and quarantine, uh, then they do the cardiac testing prior to the athlete being cleared. So they do indeed test, of course, if someone tests positive, for COVID. You know, you don't just jump in and test right away. So there we have it. All right. Back to Mr. Flynn. Um, I, I don't know what kind of relationship, Doug, you had with Tom Seaver. I know, obviously, everybody knows, and I explained uh, uh, that, that you were part of uh, one of the biggest trades in baseball history. So you've, you're always going to be linked to his name, to the trade that sent him from New York to Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. But did you have a relationship at all with him? Not like I did with a whole lot of other guys that I've played against, and, and you're right, uh, a lot of phone calls today and a lot of texts from a lot of my friends down at Mets Fantasy Camp. It's yeah. a sad day in baseball. and You know, Dick, I, I remember when guys like Mickey Mantle and uh, Ernie Banks, a, a lot of the older players started getting older, and then a few yeah. of them would pass away. I thought, wow, 
And then all of a sudden now you're seeing that more in the era that I played, yes. uh, the 60s, 70s, 80s. There's a lot of guys that are doing that. But, you know, when Tom passed away, certainly one of the greatest to ever play, maybe the best pitcher. Uh, when people say who was the toughest pitcher I ever faced, uh, Nolan Ryan was really tough. Yeah. But maybe the best overall pitcher that I saw in all the years that I played with Steve, he just had total control, total confidence. You knew when he went to the mound that he was in there for nine innings. And you better get a couple of runs off of him early. If you didn't, you weren't going to get a couple. Uh, and then when I got a chance to hang out, we really only hung out one time, and that was on the 25th anniversary of the trade where all of us, for the only time in the history of the trade, ever got together. That's Pat Zachary, uh, Danny Norman, Stevie Henderson, myself, and Tom. And we did some speaking. And what we all came to the conclusion was, if it wasn't for Tom being traded, many of us would not have had a chance to become everyday players. The only one who didn't stay very long was Danny Norman, who was a big, strong kid, but he was just put in a tough situation. Zach pitched for 10 or 11 years. Stevie Henderson for 12, me for 11. So, you know, we are very grateful and thankful that Tom, who was going to leave New York anyway, chose Cincinnati to come to. Yeah. People, you know, I'm sure people in New York blamed you guys. You know, really. Tom Seaver won. I should have saved saved the letters I got. Man, (laughs) they were, I mean, some of them were, you know, and I understand that because he was considered the franchise. Yeah, uh, the best player to ever put on a Met uniform. They got a statue of him. He's in the Hall of Fame. I, we all understood that, and Tom understood it too. Uh, there were some fans that didn't quite take it to heart, but uh, that was okay. You know, you get by that. It's, in New York, it's in, like most ballparks. If you keep your mouth shut and play hard, you really don't have a lot of trouble with the fans. Well, and if you win a Gold Glove, that helps. And I'm sure that helps when. I'm sure that when you left New York, they were just as upset and disappointed that you left, right? Hello? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think so, my friend. I don't, I don't think so. Uh, yeah. it, well, it, was, it was a little surprising when I did leave, however, but, uh, uh, you know, you lose a guy like Tom. Yeah. They were dismantling that 73 team that had won yeah. in 69. Tom was going, they ended up got Jerry Grody, Buddy Harrelson, Felix Mion. Everybody was getting a little bit older. Tom had had trouble. Dick Young did an article which basically brought Tom's family into the picture. And when yes. that happened, he said, I'm out of here. That's right. So he was going to go somewhere. Why not go to a team that had won back-to-back World Series championships? Yeah. And yet it didn't work in Cincinnati. I mean, he pitched okay. I mean, he had, he had a, a no-hitter. But it was not that big piece of the puzzle that catapulted the Reds back to the top, was it? Well, we got rid of the big piece of the puzzle. Yeah. That was that guy over at first base. Tony Perez. That was Tony Perez, yep, because he's the one, and you and I have talked about this a thousand times, he's the one that could let Pete and Johnny and Joe go at each other, and he was kind of like the Dean Martin of that rat pack. You know, they mm. Dean was sort of the enforcer, and, yeah. and I've heard stories. Frank Sinatra was, he pretty much, had everybody else under control, but he kind of was a little bit scared of Dean a little bit. That's kind of what Tony <laughs> Perez was like. Well, yeah, you told me he would walk up to Pete and say, hey, Joe said this about you. You're going to let him get away with it and said the same kind of thing oh, yeah. to Joe. And uh, every <laughs> every clubhouse needs that. Am I right? You're absolutely right. And that's one of the things that I think is lost when we start looking at some of the clubhouses now is, 
you've got to have a certain – I mean, guys have to like each other. And you have to have – you have to be able to have your little spats and your arguments. And But the biggest thing is that every one of those superstars respected each other. They respected the game. They taught us to respect our positions as whatever they were. And today I just – you know, when I see all the changes that are going around in baseball – it's almost like people are getting in there and you don't respect the traditions that we've had for so many years, and it's not fun to watch. Uh, I've got to ask you to tell it again. I've heard it a hundred times. It's one of the best stories I've ever heard, but some of our listeners I'm sure never have. But ordinarily, uh, I, I know when a guy is traded, you know, uh, someone from the front office might come up to you and say, hey, the GM wants to speak to you, or the manager brings you into the office, which is what happened with Crash Davis, you know, in Bull Durham. But you found out about being traded for the first time from Pete Rose. Please, please share that. Well, leading up to that point, they'd had articles in the paper about, well, the Reds going to make any moves. You know, they won back-to-back. Is Danny Dreesen going to be their regular? Or are they thinking Or he is going to be the regular? They'd already got rid of Perez. What else were they going to do? Well, the headline of the paper said, Flynn untouchable. So I thought, all right, I'm not going anywhere. So I'm in pretty good shape. So we're playing June 15th, 1977, and Pete is very animated with the dugout because in Riverfront Stadium, third base was very close to the dugout. Right. And he was talking, and, and, you know, usually he'd say something, but he was a little more animated than usual. So the inning's over. He came over, sat down beside me, patted me on the leg, and I knew something was up, so I just looked at him and said, I'm gone, Erna, and he went, yeah. (laughs) I said, wow, where am I going? And they'd already announced it on the radio, but I didn't know. And uh, he said, you're going to New York. And I said, hmm, I'm thinking, all right, who's playing the middle infield for the Mets and the Yankees? Where would I, why would I be going there? Uh, you're going to the Mets. And I went, wow, who for? And he said, Tom Seaver. And I very sarcastically looked him straight in the eye and said, straight up? <laughs> and he said, I don't think so. <laughs> they might still be making making payments on that trade. I don't know, but you know, it's obviously very good for me and Stevie and and uh, Zach, all of us, because we got a chance to go over and play for one of the best managers in baseball, Joe Torrey, and uh, yeah. it, it was pretty cool, really. Yeah, I have seen Doug tell that story to a dozen people in in baseball, and they just howl you know which <laughs> good naturedly but but they howl. you got to know the game though dick as you know you got to yeah, know the yeah. game because if if you're telling somebody who's not a baseball fan and they, you say straight up you know a hall of famer for a guy yeah. like me who's a utility <laughs> player at the time it's not going to mean anything to them and so sometimes i, I got to know my audience because i told it one night i was speaking to a group of people and they said tell us how you got traded and i told them and I said, you know, the line straight up, and they looked at me and went, oh, okay. <laughs> no, you're not supposed to say okay. You're supposed to laugh. Right. <laughs> uh, hey, Doug. I, you know, he was a good person. He was a good man. Uh, everybody knew that Tom was struggling the last couple of years. Yeah. He got Lyme disease, and after the Lyme disease, oh, yeah. um, the dementia kind of set in. A couple of the guys from the Mets went out to visit with him and said it was very noticeable. And, uh, mm. you know, horrible stuff. Uh, but he'll certainly go down as, you know, just a legend in, in our game as one of the best to ever, right. ever step on that mound. Absolutely. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Doug. And and you talked a little bit about respecting the tradition of the game. What do you think Tom Seaver would have thought of sending it seven-inning doubleheaders in today's Major League Baseball? 
he probably love it because he knew he's going to get a seven-inning complete game win. <laughs> That's why he might like that. There's a whole lot I don't think Tom would have liked. Uh, pitch counts, spin ratios. Um, you know, it, I, I just think he knew, and you knew too, back in those days because they didn't keep the radar and all that. You knew if you had good stuff, by the way, the hitters weren't hitting you or attacking you. And I heard the Reds say about a week ago, well, the good news is that on their out, they are hitting it second hardest of any other team in baseball. <laughs> you know, it, it, I thought the game was about winning and losing. And to me, when you're not moving runners, uh, you're getting double off on bases, you're not hitting cutoff men, you're not getting big hits, don't blame it on something else. Uh, this team this year started off with a lot of expectations, but yeah. if you start looking at their numbers, there's some guys that haven't stepped up to the dish. And in a 60-game season, uh, I, I think we're all just a little bit disappointed on the way it's turned out so far. They're going to have to make an awful good run here in the last three or four weeks. The one thing Seaver knew, well, he knew a lot more than this, but the one thing he did know is he needed to keep that knee dirty. Because that meant his mechanics were sound, and I wish I had known that when I was a kid. I wish I had known trying to be a pitcher. I wish I had known the importance of getting that knee dirty because he was so consistent with that delivery, and that's one of the many, many reasons that he was so tough to hit. And, you know, Dick, that's so hard to do because you, you see very few pitchers that do it now. Yeah. I mean, that's. That's really with the way he stretched, and, and uh, you have to have really strong legs, which he did. And uh, But you don't see a lot of guys emulate that now because it's hard to do. And, you know, Tom wasn't a real big guy, maybe six foot, six one, maybe. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was thick, probably, what, 215? I don't know Yeah, if he read that. But he wasn't like these guys today, six six and six five that are weighing 230 and 240 coming here throwing the ball. So, he got a lot out of what he could do, but his, his mechanics, you said, were so good that he could stay strong and consistent throughout a, uh, the course of the game. He was tough. I mean, he had great control, he had good fastball, a little slider, but he would cut the ball a little bit, but he could put it wherever he wanted. And if you watch some of the old footage of him, watch Jerry Grody sit back there and just set the mitt. Rarely <laughs> does he move it. And that helped to have a guy like Jerry Grody behind the plate. You know, Mr. Gold Glove. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. There yeah, people... he'd have won a bunch of gold gloves if it wasn't for that other guy in Cincinnati. That's, that's right. I know there are still people who argue who was a better defensive catcher, uh, Grody, or the guy you played with. But I'll take the guy you played with. Well, actually, uh, you, you played with both, I guess. So. Um, yeah, but... there's two different kinds of catchers. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. Johnny's so gifted athletically, great fast feet. Jerry, just a workhorse, worked his rear end off, man, just, you know, probably sweated as much as anybody ever played with because he had to work at everything he did, and he worked hard. Johnny's came pretty easy back there with the quick feet, the great arm. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, so it was – but both of them outstanding, obviously. You mentioned the Miracle Mets and the components on that team, and several of them had been with the Mets for a while, and it hadn't been – I don't know if they were in last place the year before, but they never they never gave any indication, uh, as I recall. And I've read about them since, that they were going to jump up. And, of course, they had to chase down the Cubs that year. The Cubs totally yeah. blew. I think they had like a 13-game lead at one point in yeah. August. Um, but it's interesting the way that team came together. And, unfortunately, Doug, it just seems like you can't have teams come together like that anymore. You know, the way – 
the way teams are constructed now, uh, not just through the draft, but through contracts and, and trades and guys holding out and all that. So, you know, will we ever get another great story like that? Well, you've heard me say over and over, Dick, that I think the biggest change in pro sports is the fact that the players no longer control the game. Not that that was a great thing in all respects, but when you got down on that field and got between the lines, the players who respected the game took care of the game. I think when I look back at Magic Johnson and Larry Bird and guys during their era in the NBA, if they saw a rookie, they don't care who he was or what team he was on. If he wasn't respecting the game, they would say something to him, and that's the way our game was. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, today, if something happened goes wrong, well, you, you go up to your agent, and then you go upstairs, and then you go do Man, the players are not allowed to police the game, and I'm not so sure that this group that's playing now would even be able to do that. Mm. Uh, in our game, when you came up, you had a couple of guys making pretty good money. The rest of us making – you know, I've told you, I made 16000 my first year. Yeah. My third year, or my fourth year as a starting second baseman, I'm making $40,000 a year. Yeah. So that's a starting second baseman in ba- baseball. And that wasn't bad for back in 1978. But today, first-year player makes $600,000. Yep. They've got all these guaranteed contracts that are in there for guys, which to me kind of changed the game. When you were on that year-to-year contract, man, you had to produce or, you know, do sure. something. Now they sign a four- or five-year deal for a lot of money. And I would love to see the players, if a guy stands at home plate, I'd like to see his own teammate hits a home run. I'd like to see his own teammate grab him by the shirt and say, hey, you don't do that. Mickey Mantle had yeah. the greatest line that I've ever heard about home runs. And, I mean, I'm sure these guys were a lot better at Mickey Mantle today. But huh. they asked him, why did he run? the bases with his head down he said look i've already embarrassed the guy once why would i want to do it again yeah it's yeah. that simple that's respect and there's a lot of that that's missing from the game now are they talented good lord yeah some big kids some they got good arms they can hit the ball a long way they're talented but if you watch the game of baseball where they're not moving runners and the little game that we were all taught help win the game uh it's just not the same so old man ranting again here i go <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? We we haven't had any UK baseball games to to, to allow you to unleash. So uh, we we've got to put you on the air somewhere. So you, otherwise, your head's going to pop off. That's true. I do have one rant. It's a little off the subject, but I, I have a question for you guys on the All radio, right. and right. and I'm sure you can give me a very good answer. All right. Why is Jim Andrews not the University of Kentucky Hall of Fame? That's a good question. I will pass that along to someone who has some clout because I, would, here's I, why I, I believe that. he belongs I started looking up some, I, Well, I started looking up some records and stuff the other day. The guy, you know, he averaged a double-double his last two years. That's we all. put some freshmen in there that were only here a year. Jim stayed for four, gives back to the community, and I just yeah. thought his numbers are pretty darn good, and you guys would have the answer if anybody would have the answer. We will get involved with that, and I'm glad you brought it up. Thank you, brother. Always a pleasure. Give my best to Miss Olga, and please stay safe. You are the greatest, my friend. Thank you, Dick. Talk to you soon. And we're back in a few on 630 WLAP. This is the home of the Wildcats. 630 WLAP. Watch me! 
Thanks what? again to my man Doug Flynn for joining us. There you go, Billy. You get a chance to talk to a real live gold glover who was traded once upon a time for Tom Seaver. How about that? Yeah, pretty cool. And uh, I was a little surprised that he said that there was no walk-up music back in his day. Maybe yeah. that's a very millennial answer, but uh, I, I guess I just figured that people got to sh decide what they wanted to hear when they came up to that. Well, no, you just went up to the plate. And Doug, of course, being an, an old-timer, although he, he doesn't seem like one, but he is, uh, he believes that that's one of the reasons the games are so slow is he believes and he watches for this kind of thing that players stand there and wait to hear their music. <laughs> he said back in my day, he would say, he said, and, and this is the way it was when we were playing ball when we were kids. At the end of the play, you're at the batter's box picking up the other bat, you know, and ta either using it or tossing it back to the dugout instead of waiting back by the dugout to hear your music and walk up. So, you know, there, there's a lot of reasons that the game is so slow. But, yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. But although I do like walk-up music, especially when – a ball club gets to pick the music for the opposing team. That I really Or enjoy. if it's a U.K. player and it's his own song. Oh, right? like Zeke. Like Zeke Lewis. That's exactly yep. right. Red Cowgirls next. 630 WLAP. Red, come on. Up and down. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.